Hey everybody, I'm Dr. Deb, and welcome to another episode of PTSD and Beyond. Welcome to the PTSD and Beyond podcast, where we give you insights into post-traumatic stress, trauma recovery, healing, and beyond. I'm Dr. Deb Lind, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind, touch your heart, and connect with your spirit, and also give you a greater understanding of yourself and others on this healing and recovery journey walked by so many of us before, wounded healers with lived experience and heroes. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into possibilities and purpose, hope, and inspiration. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. One last thing, guys, before we dive into today's episode, if you'd like an ad-free experience and like early access to new episodes and special events, I want to let you know you can join us at patreon.com. That is patreon.com forward slash PTSD and beyond. All right, let's do it. Hey, everybody, it's Dr. Deb here with PTSD and Beyond. And I got to let you know, this is right now in this moment is a pinch me moment. Those pinch me moments are moments where I think to myself, is this really happening? Am I dreaming? I'm really here. I'm really present. We're all together. And guess who I have as a guest today? So before I actually say their name, let me share with you a bit of their bio. Retired general pediatric surgeon and best selling author. New York Times bestselling author of Love, Medicine, and Miracles, Lessons Learned About Self-Healing from a Surgeon's Experience with Exceptional Patients. We're going to talk a little bit about what is an exceptional patient and how did this surgeon of decades transition from statistical information to actually saying, you know what, give me a chance to be something more than a statistic. What does that actually mean? What is an exceptional patient? How does spirituality, you know, fit in healing? What's the placebo effect? I mean, folks, you've heard me talk before about the placebo effect and why it actually is an important outlier, as well as in 1978, the founder of the methodology called Exceptional Cancer Patients, a specific form of individual and group therapy. He calls himself a privileged listener where patient and doctor become a team. Gee, what a general, what a, what a, like a pioneering concept, right? Doctors that listen to this, take note. It's more than just a philosophy. It's a practice of being present with love, miracles, and healing. Guys, let's give a heartfelt PTSD and beyond. Welcome to Dr. Bernie Siegel. Bernie, welcome to PTSD and beyond. Thank you very much, dear. You know, all the things you're saying, uh, I, I feel sad over and over again because I just wrote to my medical school because they're having, you know, new students come in and they're asking the old timers, do you want to talk to them and help them? And I keep saying what we need to do. This is one suggestion I never got an answer to from two medical schools that I've been in. Um it was when you have a student apply, tell them to send a drawing of themselves working as a doctor with the application. 
Now you'd say, why? Why? The shock I got as I started this work decades ago, and I said to a whole medical school class out in the Midwest, draw yourselves working as a doctor and pass them up front. In the whole class, there was one picture with no human being in it, just equipment. And there was one picture with a patient in it. All the rest had a medical student who is now a doctor sitting at his desk with a diploma on the wall and no human being. And that blew my mind. The instructions were draw yourself working as a doctor. And what do I get? No patients. Yeah, people sitting at a desk, right? I've written to some of the medical schools, and I don't even get an answer back saying that's an interesting idea, you know, or something. They don't even answer me. But uh, I mentioned this to my medical school now because they're looking for volunteers to come and talk to students. And I said, uh, you know, if you'll do something like that, maybe I'll come down. Because when the book first came out, the school I went to was Cornell in New York City. They invited me to their graduation to speak. Because this was a part of their life now. Mm -hmm. And it's like after that, goodbye. You know, uh, your book is there, but we don't need you. But really, we're not training people to care for people. We're training doctor people to take care of diseases. Right. And then the doctors have trouble because you can't cure every disease. People die, things happen, or you make a mistake and it causes the patient more trouble. I mean, and I don't mean malpractice. I mean, things happen to people. Mm -hmm. You know, I've operated on so many people and there are complications of the surgery and I feel awful that it happened, but hey, what can I do? It's life. Being a parent, things happen all the time. You know, there's not a book that teaches us how to live life. You know, life is one great big experiment and it can be joyful. It can be even something that is tragic. Um, Once the emotions settle down, we can, you know, it reminds me of murky water. We can start seeing things with clarity and then learning. you know, lessons, and then also opportunities for growth and to help other people. See, that's the part that saw me, I saw, because from our office, we sent 100 letters out to people saying, you want to live a longer, better life, come to a meeting. I'm expecting hundreds of people, because the secretary didn't put in the letter, as I had told her, this is just for the people who received the letter. I don't want them bringing relatives and neighbors. I don't know how to handle all that. And 12 women showed up. Oh, wow. Out of hundreds. Out of 100 letters, 12 women. And my wife said, oh, they're exceptional women. I said, let's call them exceptional cancer patients. Because let me give you the quote that made me do this. I went to a medical meeting before I had started the group to see if I could learn more ways to help patients. You know, books were starting to come out, and not just my writing, but others. And so I went to a meeting. I was the only doctor in the whole room, 150 people. That blew my mind. 
a doctor is giving a conference on how to help cancer patients. And not one doctor in the state of Connecticut showed up except me. My patients were there. And I realized later what a compliment it was that they came and sat with me. They didn't run away from me. And this one patient, young woman said, because I said to her, what are you doing here? She said, you're a nice guy. I feel better when I'm in the office with you, but I can't take you home with me. Mm -hmm. So I need to know how to live between office visits. That sentence altered my life. I said, okay, I don't have to be a failure. I can help people live. It's not about curing every disease, but I can help everyone live. Mm -hmm. started the support groups. And then you notice if you help people live, they don't die when they're supposed to. See, because that was like the second step. You begin to meet people you think are dead and they're not. Right. And I'd say, why did you come back to the office? You know, what have you been doing? And they would say to me, oh, all those doctors, all they're telling me is when I'm going to die. And then, so why should I come back to the office? Aren't we all going to die? I mean, eventually we're all going to die, right? I never gave them a date or negative news in that way. You know what I mean? Uh, Yeah. I didn't send them home depressed, but that's what they were saying to me. I feel worse when I leave the doctor's office, so I'm not going to come back. Right. Uh, And I wasn't an oncologist. I was their surgeon. So, you know, when I meet them, I'd say, oh, you know, why didn't you say hello? Why didn't you come back? Why didn't you? Yeah. Oh, one that make you laugh. I mean, there are a lot of them that make you laugh because people I thought were dead. And, you know, you call up a family to say, why didn't you invite me to the funeral? This is several years after he was supposed to die. And he answered the phone and said, it was so beautiful here. I forgot to die. He moved to Colorado <laughs> to live in the mountains. And my landscaper friend who I've written about he, he said, I'm refusing further treatment because I want to go home, and make the world beautiful. It's springtime. So if I die, I leave a beautiful world. Six years later, the nurse handed me his chart. And I said, he's dead. He's never come back. And she said, Bernie, open the door. <laughs> well, I opened the door and there sat John. Hi, I have a hernia from lifting boulders in my landscape business. So he became my therapist. And I mean that. Uh, seriously, because he taught me the beauty of life. That's what kept him alive, nature. Yeah, I used to spend time outdoors with him, loving nature and life. And he lived to 91. There's something about nature. I live in Minnesota. I'm a native Detroiter. And I can go out in my backyard. Uh, We have a a doves, all morning doves nest right now. And I talked to, I always, every morning I sit in the morning dove, Hey mama. And then I bring her out little food, you know, and everything. And, um, it is a special place when you can connect with nature. It just, well, there I, is something about it. Several of my books, if people like animals and nature, read them. I have one called love animals and miracles and other, you know, with, because I learned, mm-hmm. um, I've always been attached to animals. So is my wife. And uh, we just started bringing pets home. We had five kids. So they would have their interests. We had ours. And I called our house a zoo. It really was a zoo. A front yard 
had goats and ducks and geese and all kinds of outdoor creatures. Veterinarians used to send me exotic pets that people didn't want anymore. I mean, they'd call me and say, well, you take this. We don't know what to do with it. Yeah, I'd say send it over. So we had all these exotic creatures. And um, a lot of times I'd have to call the police department because they disappear. And I would tell the police what to look out for. <laughs> Invariably, they were usually hiding in the house somewhere, you know, uh, taking a nap or something. But They're the, intuitive, though. Yeah. I mean, we had a skunk who was de-skunked, for instance. And I would have to call the vet sometimes to say the skunk disappeared. And I learned later that a lot of the things we were doing were breaking zoning laws and regulations. That the But the police, I didn't know that, you know, when I was calling them. But then I read some article in local newspaper about, you know, zoning laws and animals and pets. And I thought, wow, the police never turned me in, never got mad at me. And they knew I was doing it out of love for all these creatures. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes the rules are are flexible, especially when things are done out of love. Um, there was a young lady that was at our, our house for over a week. She would have been homeless. Uh, actually, she said she would have lived underneath the uh, parking garage stairwell. And she stayed with us for over a week. And I helped her with, uh, I mean, just all basic kinds of things. You know, what is a what does a structured home look like? How do you do your homework? You know, make sure your clothes are clean. But the most important thing was uh, safe touch, knowing what, knowing that yes, yeah, safe a safe hug is there, and it and love can can be received um, from somebody that you don't even know. And I really do believe that we don't know the lives that we touch because you don't always get that feedback, right? There, you're not always getting that feedback. I think one thing that you can, at least I can anyway, with, with certainty is know that there are people who can feel and resonate with what we're saying, as well as the message of love and caring. You can't fake that. You cannot, cannot uh, fake it. My wife used to feed raccoons out yeah. on the porch. No, these are still wild creatures. And I used to be nervous, but I noticed how tame they were. You know, be, that they'd know she was there mm -hmm. and they'd come up on the porch and she'd come out and turn the light on and, you know, sit there and feed them. And the one disaster was you realize how powerful skunks are. Everybody was afraid of a skunk because they get sprayed. Yeah. So if a skunk would walk up on the porch, zoom raccoons disappeared my wife would run in the house <laughs> usually they were late and got sprayed anyway but i i had to laugh because i thought it's wonderful how powerful that skunk is just from that smell just its presence and claws and everything else mm -hmm. and one of the as i say the skunk that we um adopted um we had you know, de-skunked. So it was a friend and nobody was afraid of it. Um, but how smart they also were. I was just thinking of a rabbit that we had, that if I sat on the pouch, on the couch reading a book, because I, you know, I'm trying to learn something, read. And 
the rabbit would come over, jump on the couch, grab the book in her teeth and throw it on the floor. <laughs> I knew she was saying, damn, that book, pet me. Never right. book. And so I would pet her and then she'd let me go ahead and read the book. And the other that really touched my heart. Well, I'll tell you two things. One is funny. We had one girl, four boys. One of the boys liked uh, reptiles. So he had snakes and other things. But whenever a snake got loose, it always went to the girl's bedroom. Oh, wow. It was like it knew she was the one afraid of snakes. <laughs> we go to her room. And the boys would always hear, ah! and they'd say, oh, Carolyn found the snake. And they'd go to her room and get it. And then they bought a fake snake to taunt their sister. And they'd put it at her door. And after a while, she realized it was fake. But then the real snake disappeared one day, and we couldn't find it. And we heard Carolyn scream. And we said, oh, Carolyn found the snake because it had gone to her room and she thought it was a fake snake. So she <laughs> up and then she screamed, realizing this isn't a fake snake, it's the real one. So they were all thankful that she found it. But they all became like children. Oh, and one of the things that I wanted to say, how touched they became all the eggs in our house were hatched in incubators in the house. And what I noticed one year when the schools opened, like it's opening now, our kids would go down our curved sort of steep driveway to get on the school bus. And I noticed all the ducks and geese were following them. Oh, wow. They thought they were their parents. Oh. So the kids were going to school and the ducks and geese literally tried to get on the school bus. Because, <laughs> you know, the, the driver would open the door, the kids would climb up, and then the ducks and geese would try to jump up on the step. Oh. And thank God the drivers, they always knew our house was crazy. And so they'd laugh and they wouldn't yell at me and tell me to stop doing all this. And, you know, they put up with the crazy seagull household. <laughs> But it touched my heart. And when I released many of these ducks and geese, because year after year, my folks lived on a big lake down in New York. And I would take them there and release them on the lake. Oh, wow. First time I did it, my mother called me the next day. She said, Bernie, what? I said, what's the matter, Ma? Nothing. I just have a question. All the ducks and geese came out of the lake and walked up to the street when the school bus appeared. Oh, wow want to know why they did that. I said, Ma, you're breaking my heart. The ducks and geese are looking for our kids. Oh. You can tell the neighbors that. That's why they came to the bus. But that shows you what a connection we make and how we all know each other. And, and I've learned from a friend named Amelia Kincaid. She wrote a book called uh, Straight from the Horse's Mouth. She's an animal intuitive. Wow. When I met her, I thought, why don't you say you're nuts? You know, <laughs> I talk to animals. I mean, come on, what are you talking about? But she located lost pets for me in Connecticut while she was in Africa and California. I told her their name, what had happened. I got emails from her describing everything about the house and where they were. And I went out the next morning and picked them both up. 
Um, it, it was just incredible that she could do that. But she talked well, about quieting my mind. So I learned how to call them in at night. So they, you know, to tell them it's dangerous out there. Come on in. And yeah. So oh, one I got a story I got to tell you about animals. My wife died about four, almost five years ago. After she died, our two cats took her place. And I'm serious when I say that. They started spending time with me they had never done before. Wow. Sitting in chairs, getting in bed. And then one morning it blew my mind because I, I wrote a story about it, uh, saying my two new girlfriends, uh, it's called. Um, because Hope, the cat's name, gets up in the morning with me and starts making such a racket, cackling and, you know, I, I mean, just crazy noise that she'd never done before. And I thought, what the hell's going on? And we're walking to the kitchen and she's getting louder and louder. And then I realized what she was telling me was, your wife has died. I'm now taking care of breakfast for you. We get wow. to the kitchen, there's a dead chipmunk lying in the doorway. Oh, my gosh. And I said to her, I don't eat chipmunks. <laughs> oh, please stop. I don't want you to kill chipmunks. Oh, my gosh. For your effort, but no more, please. And uh, 95% of the time now, she doesn't leave me any treats. But every now and then, it's like she'll, you know, say, oh, I'll give him a try. See if he wants this one. And she'll leave some little thing, you know, in the hallway or outside my bathroom or someplace uh, to see if I'm interested. <laughs> yeah, pets are wonderful. We have a, a rescue dog and uh, this is my my second dog. And I wonder sometimes, you know, like, how does he actually really know? You know, we have a connection with with pets. How do we develop that same intuitive connection with each other? Well, yeah, we think too much, let's put it that way. But if we would just let our thinking be set aside and let our consciousness come in, then it would work for people too. And I mean that. Um, you can call it, because now, see, when, when my books and myself first came out, I was considered controversial. I got on all the TV shows with doctors arguing with me that I'm crazy. I don't know what I'm talking about. But it was talking really about intuition and consciousness mm -hmm. that you're feeling, not thinking. Mm -hmm. So when people, and that's why I began to use an enormous amount of drawings. See, I did a drawing when I went to a workshop uh, Elizabeth Cooper Ross was running trying to get her to help me deal with people and life and death. And I drew an outdoor scene and two first two questions were, why is 11 important? I said, what are you asking me that for? You drew 11 trees in your picture. I said, oh, I've been doing this support work for 11 months. And then she said, um, what was the other one? Oh, my God, my, my brain is going dead. Oh, yeah. What are you covering up? I said, what are you asking me that for? She said, you made a mountain with snow on it with a white crayon. The page is white. You don't need a white crayon. So you added a layer. What are you covering up? 
And I, that I realized later that I was covering up all my feelings as a doctor that we talked about a few minutes ago. I wasn't trained to deal with. I was in a lot of pain. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, my first painting of myself, because one of the reasons I became a surgeon was I was an artist. I wanted to use my hands, but I didn't know you could sell paintings. As a kid, I didn't know anything about art. I just liked being an artist. And um, I painted myself in a cap mask and a gown, completely hidden. Wow. And I had no trouble doing that. Hmm. And that taught me something. You know, I call that now my cover-up time, like what Elizabeth was saying. Because when I went to paint my wife's portrait, I had a lot of trouble painting her in an evening gown looking, you know, gorgeous. And I finally stopped. I said, it's not you. And then one day she jumped off her bike, you know, wearing a sport jacket and things. I said, oh, that's you. And in a few days, I painted this beautiful painting of her in a sporty outfit. And I had no trouble with that because that was my real wife, you know. And I was really this hidden guy uh, who couldn't deal with all his feelings. And the name on the painting is The High Priest. Oh, wow. I learned from Jung. He said the reason monks shave their head is symbolic of uncovering your spirituality. And that's what I had done that year. I did the painting. I shaved my head. And I realized the statement of the priest, my shaved head, all these things had to do with my spiritual nature and bringing that forth. I can relate to this with the hair. Um, I had long hair years ago. Um, and then uh, I cut it off at a, when my at, from actually when my dad passed away, I cut my hair off. And I remember I was living in um, Michigan in the Detroit area. I was in Royal Oak. And the gal was like, are you sure you want to cut your hair off? I mean, it was like shoulder length. And I said, yeah, I want to go. I want to do a pixie. And I've kept my hair short ever since. And for me, uh, I feel the same way that it was, it was, um, I want to say a rebirthing for myself, but a, a liberation actually of being my true self, as opposed to, you know, like imposed beliefs. Um, and I always, I enjoy getting my hair done actually. And I, and I like being able to, um, Answer other women's questions when they say, I love this comment, not love it, literally. But when women will say to me, if I cut my hair that short, my husband will kill me. And I've actually said, would he really? Would he really kill you? I'm like, oh, my gosh, I understand what they mean. But what they say is something completely different. Well, that's what the barber said to me. I came in. I said, I want you to shave my head. He said, no, you got five kids. They'll kill me. You know, you embarrass them enough already. And I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll go on vacation on Friday and I'll come back Friday. You shave my head and I'll leave town. So he said, all right. He didn't know I was lying. <laughs> um, he shaved my head and then I went to the office. And my wife didn't know it was me. She saw the shaved head and let out a scream when I turned around. And um, but in many ways, it helped them all to be who they were. Because the kids used to come home thanking me. And they'd walk in the house and say, hey, Dad, thanks. 
I said, what are you thanking me for? I didn't do anything. Oh, I did something crazy at school today. And the teacher said, well, you know who his father is. Yeah, I, I get that, too. They didn't get punished because <laughs> I was their father. And that included some of them working as lawyers who heard other lawyers say, well, you know, his father is, you know, they weren't being idiots, or, but it's how they were doing things mm. uh, that it, it, in a sense, gave them the freedom to be themselves. Right. And they changed because of all the animals, too. You know, they loved and cared about them and life and everything else. So our house, our yard, uh, they say we broke the zoning laws, but nobody was angry at us because we were loving the creatures. How do we how do we um, well, let me back up for a second. One of the things that I like to say is that love is the antidote to pain and suffering. How do we. How do we expand love? Why are people so two, twofold here? What, how can we expand love? And why are people so afraid of love? Feel safe with each other. I have a perfect example. We had a black rabbit named Smudge. And we had a fluffy white dog that my wife didn't want. Because she said, he's going to leave fluffs of hair all over the place. I don't need any more cleaning, you know, already. We got enough. I said, his name is Furfy, you know, too much fur. So <laughs> she laughed and said, all right, he can stay. So we had a dog named Furfy who was white and Smudge. Now, when I brought Smudge into the house, the vet said, don't let the dogs be alone with the rabbit because they can sometimes attack them and grab them and hurt them. So make sure they all get to know each other first, you know, that they see each other, but they're not left alone together. After about seven days, I went out of the house and I thought, oh, you didn't wait a week or 10 days. I thought, yeah, but they know each other. So I kept going and I came back and sure enough, Furphy had grabbed Smudge and bitten her. And she had some bleeding and had to go to the vet and everything. A week or so later, I go out in the front yard to check on Smudge and bring her in to take care of her. And I can't find her, which was not unusual because she liked being outside. She had black fur so she could hide in you know dark areas. And I'd go nuts calling her name and trying to bring her in. And uh, I saw a furphy lying on the ground in the yard and I went over to pet him and I saw black fur under him and oh did I get nervous so I pick him up and there was smudge perfectly healthy and well hiding under furphy like they were cuddling yeah and I thought wow what a lesson they just taught me he attacked her wounded her and now they're best of friends and it was such a gift to see all these creatures become family. Mm-hmm. You know, they, yeah, they've taught me something. You know, we talk about skin color. What people forget is, as a surgeon, I can tell you, we're all the same color inside. And I really feel, this is my, me and my crazy imagination and thought, that the reason God made darker creatures was to protect them. 
so they could hide from predators. See? Like the black rabbit. Where where does he hide? Mm. You know? And if he didn't have a friend, he couldn't have hidden. But he could under furphy. Yeah. Light colored and not as easy to notice. And I think that's why we're all made differently to blend in and, you know, fit together and help each other. And uh, even when I would do surgery on some of the pets, they never threatened me, never tried to bite my finger or my hand. And I knew I was hurting them. You know, they had cuts, bruises or needed some minor surgery. And I knew they'd let me do it. If I could see I was hurting them, you know, like they pull back a little, I'd stop. Yeah. And it's the rest. And then we'd start again. But it was so impressive to me. And I told you, you know, how the rabbit would jump on the sofa, grab my book and throw it on the floor. So she could tell me too, hey, mm. attention, never mind the damn book, you know, that they, they could act that way. And uh, we all were able to teach each other lessons. I think we can all teach each other lessons as humans too. What do you, what do you think their future looks like? I mean, one of the things I, that I see in your work when, especially the book, I have so many underlines and everything. It's uh, incredible with from, you know, in this particular start of your career and then, and then toward the finish of the book and just this one book in particular. And I've listened to, I've watched all your videos on YouTube. I mean, I've had things going on in the background when I've been in the kitchen cooking and what I'm curious to know about is the next phase for humanity with developing love, developing consciousness, being intuitively aware to energy. I mean, I went to a baseball game yesterday and you know, I'm not a Twins fan. I'm a Red Sox fan, but the Red Sox are playing the Twins. And so I walk into the stadium and you can feel the energy. And when you talk about energy and describe it that way to people and talk about, you know, you walk into a stadium, you can feel the energy, right? Most people say, yes, you can. So how can we experience the energy with each other as a collective outside of stadium environments? So the stadium environment is like the control environment. And here we are in the real world. You got to stop all the thinking and pay attention to feeling. I began to notice there were patients who'd walk into the office and I knew they'd do well. I mean, that may sound crazy, but it's like they radiated something. And I'd walk right up to them and say, you're going to do well, don't worry. And they'd look at me like, you don't even know me. What are you talking about? But I could feel it. And then there are others who came in and it's like they were sucking the energy right. out too. And I knew, uh-oh, we got yep. And let me tell you this. I mentioned that young woman who said, I need to know how to live between office visits. When I came back to the office on Monday after that weekend workshop, my partner saw me walk in the door and screamed, you're gone. I said, what are you talking about? I'm gone. He said, you're not the same person you were on Friday. You're going to leave surgery. Wow. I thought he was nuts. I mean, what do you mean I'm not the same person I was Friday? What do you mean? In a year and a half, I retired from surgery. I had started the group a few months later. 
And I really became a different person. And that's the stuff that proves it to you. You know, here he is. He's not an intuitive. He's a sensitive guy. But to yell at me, you're gone, was amazing. And he was right. Wow. Yeah. So I'd say quiet your thinking. And then you get into the feelings and know. And that's why I recommend the drawings. That if you say to somebody, draw your self, your disease, your treatment, your immune system, eliminating the disease. Now, you can draw a really scary, horrible picture, you know, with black rayons and horrible disease. And yeah, then I'd spend a lot of time with the person changing their way of thinking. You know, like they call chemotherapy poison. Yeah. If you feel like you're going to the doctor to get poisoned, you're not going to do well. Right. But then there are people, and these are quotes, I don't make up stories, where the oncologist thought the nurse had screwed up or something, you know, there was no reaction to the treatment. And the woman said, well, I just get out of the way and I let it go to my tumor. And the radiation therapist also said that to me. He said, I thought the machine was broken. This lady has no external reaction. And then I saw your name in the chart. So I knew it was a crazy patient. So instead of checking the machine, I went to her and said, how come you have no reaction? And she said the same thing. I let it go to my tumor. I get out of the way, you see. And and so when people saw something as poison, they had every side effect. And literally, when you say draw the picture, I've had people draw the devil giving them poison as chemotherapy. Oh, my gosh. And they're going to have reactions on the way to the doctor. And it's true when we do studies. We find out white blood counts are dropping and you're only driving to the doctor. But when people see it as a gift and some one lady drew it literally as coming from God. Wow. And she had no side effects at all, did beautifully. So those are things I would work with with the patients. You know, draw me a picture and give them a box of crayons, draw a picture. Because if it looked like hell. No, we're not going to do it. I mean, for instance, one lady drew the operating room as a black box. Nobody's in it except her lying on a table. Oh, wow. Who's going to take care of you? What are you doing? You have to change this. And so she began to visualize people caring for her, a completely different feeling about the operating room. And then her picture changed where she's got people around her, colors in the picture. I said, okay, you can go now. Go ahead. And she had no, and people had no side effects to surgery either. The nurses used to yell at me, your patients are a problem. (laughs) Why are they a problem? They're refusing pain medication. And I said, did it ever occur to you they're not hurting? Mm. They'd look at me like, what are you, nuts? You just cut somebody open and they're not hurting. But I learned that's true. I did a lot of children's surgeries. My way of saying was I lied to the kids all the time. And our kids used to get upset with me for saying, you're lying to children? You're not for that? <laughs> but I was hypnotizing them, I would call it. You know what I mean by my lies? They had faith in me. Right. So I would say to them, 
oh, this alcohol sponge is brand new. It numbs your skin as well as cleaning it. So you're not going to feel the needle. Don't worry about it. And the kids would say, oh, why don't the other doctors do that? That's wonderful. Right. Yeah. Because I put them in a different mind place. And uh, the, the people at the hospital learned a lot from the kids. Oh, uh, I love kids. I made a coloring book for them to fill out first so they could know how they were feeling about surgery, the experience and everything. And the intuitive wisdom, again, the first page said you meet an um, anesthesiologist who is someone who is dressed in an outfit that looks like green pajamas. <laughs> now, the child that day drew him in red. What did that say to me? He's in danger of different anesthetic drugs. Yep. I said to the anesthesiologist, this scares me. Turn to the last page. If he draws himself purple, I'm sending him home because that's a spiritual color. He may be saying, I'm going to die in the operating room. The anesthesiologist said, Bernie, you're right. His mother has muscular dystrophy. If he has her genes, he could have a totally adverse reaction to muscle reactions and they could threaten his life. Wow. Now, that's the part, you see. How does this kid know this? But it's the consciousness, the intuitive wisdom that's in us. So we looked at the last page and it showed that I'm not happy and, you know, I'm going home okay, but I am not happy about the operation. So we went ahead with it. And, you know, he went home uh, saying he didn't like how he felt and that sort of thing. But um, if he had drawn it in purple, you're damn right, I'd say go home. Uh, I'm not going to take you into the operating room. What I hear you saying, too, is that is that throughout our lifetime, we experience conditioning. Then that clouds, if we yeah. want to use the word clouds, our, in, our intuition, which we are, are born with. Yeah. Some of it's intuitive that it's in you, you know, other stuff you hear in your family. So it becomes a part of your beliefs. Mm. That can lead to trouble. Yeah. One more so people can understand the good side. Um, a lot of the, um, uh, what's the word I want? The, um, you know, we're giving the chemotherapy, the oncologists. When I started the groups, they said, what the hell are you doing? You're a surgeon, not a psychiatrist. You can kill people, make them feel worse. But they saw I wasn't hurting people. Right. And then they began to notice the people who come to him do well. It isn't him. It's the people. So they began to enjoy them. And if my name was in a chart in the hospital or anywhere, they were called Siegel's Crazy Patients, and people loved taking care of them. And one lady came up all the way from North Carolina because she had a... Uh, a nurse who was helping my father-in-law who had a spinal cord injury. And she said to her, oh, Dr. Siegel helps people all the time, makes them well. Why don't you come up here and uh, let him help you? And she didn't even ask me. That's the part I get upset about. I said, I can't promise everybody. But I learned 
you don't have to promise. If they believe, it happens and you get credit. So the lady shows up. I said, you have leukemia. That's not a surgical condition. I'm going to admit you to the hospital and have my oncology friend see you. He goes over and he said, after going over her records, Bernie, I agree with her doctor. She's got a couple of months to live. But I know you and your crazy patients, so I'll give her hope. He started her on chemotherapy. Every two weeks, I'd get a note from him. And it started out with, you know, doing well, very well. By the sixth week, in complete remission. Oh, wow. And the note said, isn't chemotherapy wonderful? (laughs) That was his way of teasing me because, you know, he knew what he had said to me. He agreed with her doctor. It had no help. There was no help in the type of leukemia she had. And those are the things that change the doctors, the patients, and the nurses too. They realized he's not crazy. You know, the people may be crazy in a sense, but it's a healthy craziness. So let's go along with them and do these things and give them the hope. So when people saw my name in a chart, they enjoyed taking care of those patients because they knew they were going to respond better than the ones who only had, oh, I'm going to die. I'm going to this. I'm I'm going to lose all my hair. I mean, yep. All they were saying were negative things. Right. Don't you think that some people, I mean, I'm I'm sure there's scientific studies that show that environment is important and influence of um, outcome of, of care and healing. And so if you're, if a person's in an environment where they feel that they're being heard, they feel that it's safe, they feel that somebody cares about them and that someone is actually reinforcing the hope, right? The the reason, the spirit that they have a higher outcome of recovery and or even remission. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking of something right now. You have a sign behind you. Yes. The SD and beyond with the two most emotional colors, red and black. And you know, why not have it in yellow and green? Okay. That's a good question. It's a navy blue and orange. Does it look like it's red and black? Yeah. Coming through in the, you know, computer, it looks more red and black. Here, but I'll move it. Sort of an orange tint to it, to the redness. But But what I learned was how much colors predicted what was going to happen to people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, think of even the street corner. You know, you have a red light to stop, a green to go, and orange is a symbol of change. So you got the red and the yellow mixed, and every color, and this is not something I made up. I mean, Carl Jung did this decades ago, and other Jungian therapists also. So what is in an office or an operating room or a hospital room affects the outcome. I mean, studies have been done. See, when you put nature scenes up on a wall of a hospital, right? Put a nice color like blue or green on the wall, the people go home many days sooner than the ones 
who have a dark gray. Right. And there's a whole psychology of colors. It's interesting that you bring that up, though, because we're uh, our team is in the process of redoing our colors specifically for like, how do we think it makes people feel? And then there's the um, I'm not going to remember the name of the person, but I know that, you know, it's the emotional wheel. And so it it has all of the different colors that represent like anger is red. And then you've got calm, which is in, in blue. Um, I don't know. Maybe we can have another conversation. You can look at our colors. Yeah, I can help you make a decision uh, about what to do uh, because it, it does. It, it really makes a difference. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I have some physical therapy that I go through uh, due to some problems I've had from Lyme disease and other things, you know, with walking and balance and things. So I love to go in there. But the whole place is gray. Oh, gray. They've got black pillows. You know, oh, it's terrible. Yeah. And, and I've talked to the guy who owns the place. I said, you know, you, you would get people doing better and recovering faster if they came in and saw some yellow energy or yep. green, you know, in an examining room, not feel like you're going into a morgue when you go in to lie down on the table. Um, they don't respond to me, but it, it is so true uh, to feel these things. And the people coming in do. And the thing is, when, see, it, it, it's like if the per person who's a physical therapy needed physical therapy, yeah, then he would change the color of the therapy suite. Um, but while he's not the patient, then he's thinking more about himself and his income and all the right. It's all about marketing, right? Which takes a completely different, a different angle and a different spin than, um, than what I want to say is to represent the mission and vision, right? Which is exactly what we're evaluating. Yeah. Yes. How does this represent the mission and vision? I keep this up because my daughter is an artist and she made it. And at the time, I wanted her to do a royal blue because it reminded me of Santorini, Greece, because I'm a Greek American. And then orange, because I found that uh, orange was change. more of a happy color than, you know, it wasn't. It's, it's change. Orange is a ch color of change. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> and, um, it, you know, they say what. When I would say to people, draw yourself, you know, in chemotherapy, draw your home and family, draw yourself at work. It's easy to see who's enjoying their life and made the right choices and who isn't. Yeah. You know, so and even the, the places on the page relate to past, present and future. So you can tell people what's coming ahead for them. Um you know, versus something that was in their past. And and people are amazed when you know all about them from this crazy little drawing. Because when the first time I did it, I thought it's a little drawing of an outdoor scene, someplace, uh, you know, that I created in my own meditation and mind. But when you get all these questions coming back from somebody, it's like, wow. How did she know that? Mm -hmm. 
that come from? Right. And and all of it had meaning. So that's why I started learning about those things. And I literally went to the hospital with a box of crayons in my pocket. So when I was in the emergency room, I'd say, draw a picture of yourself. And believe me, you would know who has appendicitis, who has something else, uh, uh, because of the symbols in the picture. And these, a lot of these are people who didn't know anatomy, but still drew anatomy uh, because of what they were going through. And Jung did a lot of work, too, on interpretation of symbols and dreams and meaning and shadow. And um, I know in organization development, there's some exploration about shadow to understand, you know, the sides of you that are hidden that you really don't want to. Um, I don't say you really don't want to, but most people often suppress those things. I think it's important when we do this work on ourselves, we know ourselves well, including exploring those shadow areas, because then we can identify, is this something that works for me, right? That question you had in your book about how does this illness resonate with me? How does it, what does it do for me? So if I keep that shadow piece, even if I don't like it, why, why do I keep it? What does it do for me? And we can even ask ourselves that question with things that we do like about ourselves. What is it? What does it do for me? How does it enhance my life? And how does it enhance the lives of the people that are around me including at work, my community? I mean, you go to the grocery store and um, I, I play this game when I go to the grocery store, right? Okay. And my kids just, they roll their eyes because they're like, oh gosh, you know what music's going to play, right? Mom's going to bust out doing something. <laughs> and then I've even had to make an agreement with one of my kids uh, when he was a little younger that I promise I won't do these because he's like, you're so embarrassing, right? But anyway, my game is who can I make smile and make their day, right? When you say to someone like, hey, Joey, how's it going, right? And he's the butcher at the counter. And he's just going through like the transition and the transaction of the transition is I'm moving from one person to another customer. Now I'm going to give my my pitch. What is it that I can help you with? You know, that kind of thing. Low energy. And it's like, no, this is an interaction. You're affecting me just as much as I'm affecting you. I see that you're like, you know, humdrum. You got that look on your face. Well, that's not all right with me. So what can I do to make your day better? They might not know. That I'm doing it. My kids know. (laughs) So you know, you go into a store or post office. How are you today? I say I'm depressed. I'm out of my antidepressant, and my doctor's away on vacation, so I can't refill my prescription. Thing. The first time I did that, I was offered antidepressants by over half a dozen people who were in the (laughs) store. The other day, I had a psychiatrist poke me in the back in the post office and say, here's my card. I specialize in depression. Maybe I can help you. And I burst out laughing because that was the first time that ever happened. And everybody in the post office is looking at me like, why is he so rude? She wants to help him. So I had to get up and say, folks, I want you to know I'm a doctor. I'm not depressed. I'm tired of people saying, how are you? When they don't really want to know. Right. Exactly. I train people to say, you're looking very well today. And then you feel good. Right. And then other people in the store say, why did they say that to you? And they don't say that to me. Right, right. To them, you know, and so they're not offended that they're being ignored. 
but it, it's to get people to really see you as a person mm-hmm. that we're all wounded. And that's what you have to realize and help people. And so I agree with that. I try to keep people smiling, you know, in crazy ways. Um, and then they look forward to having you come into the store because they know you're not normal. And that's, that's correct. And I'm okay with that. I actually tell that to my kids. You know what? I am absolutely okay with not being normal. But let me mention this for everybody. See, if you had a mystical experience happen and you went home and told everybody and they said, that's nuts. How could that be? That's what I went through. See, the controversial Dr. Siegel. But what did I learn from that? I now tell people, if you have a mystical or crazy experience, tell everybody about it. Why? Because then when something happens to them, they know they can talk to you. Right. I started having people come in the office and say, you're not my doctor, but I know you're not a normal doctor. So I came here to talk to you at the hospital, too. I paid you to come to my room because everybody thinks I'm crazy, but I know I can talk to you. Mm-hmm. So I began to learn all these things, and that's part of what changed me. They were sharing things with me. Yeah. And I, don't be afraid to share. And you see, and then too, the doctors and nurses would have something happen, and then they'd start talking to me and realize he's not crazy. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yep, exactly. It's so true. I posted on social media the other day, has anybody had a spiritual experience? And uh, I, I, the last time I think it was 49 people responded. And it was interesting how, yes, you're correct about when you post something and you, you open up the door and you also provide that, that connection of, Hey, you know what, this has happened to me too. Then people are more likely to go ahead and share their experience also. Um, I think we can learn a lot from like what you've done with your groups that when we are in a group setting and we have peer support, it's, it's not the, how we came with the traumatic stress or the trauma experience. It's the things that we go through to live a better life. And I also want to say too, that that piece of hope that you were talking about is, is another key. There's love and there's hope and connection and resonance. Community is so important. I mean, studies used to years ago, I'm sure you know this already. I'm not telling you anything you don't know about isolation studies with geriatric care. And now we have isolation studies with children because they're making friends. I'm glad you brought that up because early on you were talking about like making the world better and doing something And I had the thought I wanted to tell you, and then we went on to something else. The violence in the world today is due to a lack of love of children. Yep. And if children were loved, they would not be doing this to other people. A simple study, which wasn't about violence, but health at Harvard, maybe 10 years ago, um, the Harvard students were asked, did your parents love you? And all they had to do was say yes or no. Then the people doing the study looked them up. I think it was eight or 10 years later. 
if they said, yeah, my parents love me, something like 24% of them had suffered a major illness in the intervening years. If they said, no, my parents didn't love me, 98% had suffered a major illness. Wow. Yeah. And that's, and it's the same with the violence, you know, that if you're growing up with love, you don't go out and buy a gun and then go shoot somebody. Uh, you're there to help them. Right. To them. Yeah. And we're never too, too old either. At least I think we're all, even though I might be an adult by 54 years old, I'm still a kid. You know, I'm never too old for love. So if there's somebody who's, I think that's a, what I want to say is a misconception and a myth that while it's not a child anymore and you, you know, the should factor f- focuses in there, right? Well, actually, no, everybody needs to be loved. Everybody needs to be loved, to feel loved and to give love and receive love. Now, here's how you do it. Because you are so true with that statement. Sitting in my office, young woman said to me, you're my CD. I said, what the hell are you talking about? I'm a CD. She said, you're my chosen dad. I had given her a will to live and let her know I cared about her. Then my phone rings. This is years ago. Hello? This is at home. Dr. Siegel, yes. Do you have Jack Kevorkian's phone number? I want to be dead. I have a brain tumor. My father is abusing me sexually. I want to be dead. I said, I don't have Jack Kevorkian's phone number, but I don't want you to be dead. I'll be your father. It's beautiful. She let me become her chosen dad. And sometimes I get a card from her with a BD. That's a bonus dad. (laughs) But I have kept people alive by letting them know I love them. And these are people who were abused or one was a child who fell into the fireplace and was scarred. And she was in the office and I'm ugly, I'm ugly, I'm ugly. And I said, you're not ugly, but she wouldn't buy that. And then one summer she said, I need to get a job. I need money. I said, okay, I can get you a job. I'll get it organized and I'll call you. I called the nursing home where you had to wear an outfit that would reveal her neck and arm scars because she fell forward into the fireplace, she tripped. And um, they said, okay, we'll give her the job. And I sent her there, and she worked all summer. She came back to my office end of the summer. I said, well, how'd the job go? This is her exact words. Nobody noticed my scars. Wow. I say, Madeline, when you're given love, you're beautiful. Yep. Gift to me. And that people need to remember this. The love will come back. A few years later, the phone rings. Dr. Siegel, what is it, Madeline? I'm getting married. My father died a few years ago. Will you be my father at my wedding? Aww. And 
what's his name? Kenny Rogers. Through the years, you never let me down. Through the years, you turned my life around. That was a song she had them play, and we danced together. Aww. But, you know, that's probably one of the greatest gifts I've ever had in my life, that you made a difference in somebody else's life. Yep. And turned her around. And I may add, she became a nurse, too, and helping other people and all those things. And the people you, be, you know, start helping, they end up helping you more than you're helping them. Yeah, I find that to be I true, too. Cards here from my bonus daughter. Oh. You know, telling me, I love you, I love you, I love you. You know, <laughs> they keep coming. And it, it just feels so nice that one person, you made it different in one person's life. Oh, and loving yourself. Let me tell you another story. You have polio as a child. Your muscles are wasted away. You look ugly. As a young adult, you develop a neurological disease. She said to me, I don't want to die not liking my body. So I'm going to start to love my body. I'm going to lay down naked in front of a mirror and start on my toes and work my way up an inch at a time. What do you think happened to her disease? She accepted herself. The disease disappeared. Oh, wow. She was so busy loving herself. Her whole body healed. Oh, my gosh. And I tell that to everybody now, and I do it myself. Love yourself. And... Um, and I learned that message also from people with life-threatening illness. I mean, the way they put it was let your heart make up your mind. That was one lady's note on her refrigerator. You know, they're paying attention to their feelings. Yeah. So the job, getting a pet, where they now live, um, all these things. And then they notice, hey, I didn't die when I was supposed to. Yeah, because your body got a live message. And that's chemistry. Yep. No, um, that's immune function versus, uh, you know, stress hormone levels. And you have to realize that when you're happy, well, let's put it this way, which is true. Monday morning, there are more heart attack, strokes, suicides and illnesses because how people feel about their life. But if everybody woke up and said, oh, I love my job, I love what I'm doing. And that's what I saw happen to people buying a house on the ocean, you know, moving to Colorado, getting a dog. I mean, I have a letter that ends with all the things that this lady did to make her life better. How does the letter end? I didn't die and now I'm killing myself. I'm so busy. <laughs> you know, where do I go from here? You know, I love it. Maybe we could do another episode and talk about the some of the history of this stuff, like with Han Seeley and Walter Cannon and Wilford Bion and Jung and. Uh, you know, and even William James, some of the philosophers on well, their nuggets of wisdom that age, you know, because that, that's what I hear from a lot of doctors, that they write a book after they or their spouses develop a life threatening illness. And then my books begin to help them. And I get a thank you. And I mean it. There's some doctors that say, what are you thanking me for? And then they tell me because they used to think I was crazy. And now, 
you know, the wife didn't die and all these things that are going on and how it changed them. But they had to run into trouble in order to wake up. Yeah. Who wrote that book? It was, well, one was uh, William Bridges. And then there's also, um, Kai, what's that guy? He wrote the book that was about not catastrophic thinking. It was, um, of course, I can't remember when I want to remember it. It's a business book. Um, Deep Change. The uh, name of the book is called Deep Change. And I can't remember the name of the author, but it, it's a book about where uh, life events are the catalyst that bring change as opposed to the awareness of I need to change that some people wait for that catastrophic event to happen. Well, it's, you know, I literally refer to Donald Trump in the same way. He became who his parents wanted him to be. The, yeah, right. Make your parents happy. You have a lot of money. You're famous. You're blah, blah, blah. And when he was running for election, I wrote USA Today. I said, what people need to do with Donald is say, I love you to him. That would control him. Then, because if he's, if we say to him, oh, you did, you, you know, you didn't do that, or I didn't do that, or, you know, he's got excuses for everything. But when you say to him, I love you, he doesn't know what to answer you. Yeah, I don't think he would know what to do. Yeah. And this is in one of my books called 365 Prescriptions for the Soul. The truth in that statement, a sort of violent young man was in the car behind me, screaming and shouting and yelling. His girlfriend was in the car with him, but he was mad at the traffic. It was the summertime on Cape Cod. I said to a cop, I got out of my car, I walked over to a cop. I said, will you tell him to quiet down, stop curtsing and screaming? You know, it's like it's my fault that there's summer traffic. And the cop, I couldn't believe it. He said, that's not my job. He's a cop for the wrong reasons. I can tell you that. And so I went to the car with our kids yelling, don't do that. He can have a gun. But I went over to him. His window was partway down. I said, I want you to know something. I love you. I'm sorry that your parents don't. Wow. And. I got back in my car. He made a U-turn and drove away in complete silence. And I know he went home to talk to his parents. And I have done that kind of thing more than once. When I've had violent people in the street screaming and yelling, you know, usually it's shopping areas and things like that. And I go over and I say, well, you know, I love you. And sometimes I'll add, I'm sorry, your parents don't, but just, I love you. And they always quiet down when yeah. I love you and walk away. And boy, do I get the thanks from the scared people on the streets. Yeah. But it has worked every single time I've done it with homeless people and others. I don't know. I just walk along and let them know I love you. Some people have never heard that before. They've, they've never heard it. They've never heard it from the person or the people that they've wanted to hear it from. Uh, they've never heard it from the people who society says should love them, right? By social norms. And maybe they've heard it and it's been conditional. Yeah. You know, so to hear it from a stranger, I, I find that uh, 
I find that interesting. There have been times where I've told people that I love them too. And they've, you know, broken down crying and then just they tell you everything and you're just with them in presence with them. And I think that sometimes that's one of the best gifts that you can give to a person is to show that yeah. it can be different, that there are good people out there who right. do care. Yeah. Did you find that in your groups that the collective of caring to know that you could show up and be yourself, whatever that looked like in that, you know, maybe the hour, the two hours that you were together, did you find that people would make comments about, I come here because I feel like I belong someplace that people actually care about me. It was like family, you know, you were creating a real loving family. They weren't judging you. Yep. You'd sit there and, and, and be safe with all the people that were there. Yep. The other was that I found the sad part uh, was draw a picture, fill out these, answer these questions for me. Oh, I'm not an artist. I'm not good at that. That's the saddest part of all. I'm trying to cure you and help you cure yourself of an illness. And you're worried about filling out questions and drawing a picture. Yeah. Good at it and not an artist. That was the saddest part. People, you know, wouldn't participate because they would be a failure again. And that's how they were brought up. Yeah. And, um, you know, I would try what I call to reparent them and um, get them to do these things and not be worried about being judged. But right. And one other simple thing you can do with people when they have a problem, say, what word describes your problem? I don't know if you want to test yourself, but why do I say that? A woman's about to be admitted to the hospital. The nurse is telling me, keep your voice down. She has a, has a severe migraine. We have to admit her to the hospital. So I went in to help her. I said, let me take you through a meditation. See if we can ease the pain. Part of the meditation was, what's the word that describes your headache? Pressure. So we work on relieving pressure. And then I went out of the room and went to my patients. About half an hour later, the nurse came over to me. And she said, it was her marriage. Oh, wow. Her headache's gone. She went home to straighten her marriage out. Wow. That impressed me as to how well that kind of stuff worked. You know, because I was doing lots of crazy things. And the other was a woman with cancer. How do you describe it? Failure. What's failure in your life? Well, my body failed. I said, that's not my question. In your life. Oh, my parents committed suicide when I was a child. I must have been a failure as a child. Oh, wow. Boy. And so I never stopped doing these kinds of things, including with myself. I mean, this was interesting. Many years ago, you know, when the book came out, bestseller, my wife and I are traveling around the world. We're going everywhere. Oh, I mean, there wasn't an empty space on our calendar, you know, for the year. It was ridiculous. One morning I get out of bed and the whole room is spinning around. Oh, wow. And I thought, oh my God, what's going on? Then I said to myself, 
do what you tell your patients to do. I said, well, the world is spinning around. Right. You're doing too goddamn much. Mm. Your body is getting you to take it easy and lie down. Yep. So change your, you know, your schedule, your attitude, slow down. Boom. Then everything was okay. You know? Wow. Yeah. But I was so proud of myself that morning for saying, hey, dumbbell, (laughs) what you tell people to do, what's going on? The world is spinning around. Mm -hmm. Those are my exact words. And boy, I fixed that by taking it easy. If we pay attention, and when we pay attention to ourselves, the answers are usually, I mean, I know this sounds cliche, but it's true. The answers are really within. And so often people look for the external, right? And being able to provide the space, whether it's the podcast or even like your groups, our group provides people a place to go to get that support and then to embrace and listen to themselves. That's why the words and the drawings um, are talking to them. Mm. You know what I mean? It's not me saying this is what's wrong with you. Blah, blah, right. Blah. As most doctors are doing, you need to take this pill. This is what's the problem. Yep. It's letting them see what the problem is in them that got them sick. Yeah. Right. We have a few minutes here to wrap up. What other pieces of nuggets and wisdom, sage wisdom, I'd call it, well, that you'd like to share with our I listeners? Mean, or to, if you're a doctor, you ought to spend time in a hospital, you know what I mean, to experience things. I mean, we need to all understand the experience of what other people are going through. So that's why saying, what are you going through? What words would you use mm-hmm. that help you? And be there for people. Um, I mean, my mother was incredible. She, you know, I was her saint. So I mean, she developed leukemia and the doctors couldn't get over her because she didn't die. I mean, of the leukemia until she was ready to die many, many years later. Uh, So they used to go to her house to learn from her about how to help cancer patients. And because she lived every sermon I gave and they it was a pleasure for them to go to her house and learn from her about how to take care of people. And they all showed up at her funeral. See, and let me say this. she I knew she would never die with me in her room. You know, she got to a point, I don't know, she's in her 90s. I can't remember how old she was, but she was tired of her body. You know, I'm ready to go. But I knew if I was in the room, she would say, oh, if I die, I'm going to let him down. So I told everybody, don't think I'm a bad, uncaring son. I'm going to leave my mother every few hours so she can die when I'm not in the room and not disappoint me. Mm. And sure enough, one afternoon when I stepped out for an hour, I came back and they said she died. I said, I told you that that's my mother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and let her son down. Oh, and let me tell you one funny one. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist monk. Yep. He told people. In Buddhist countries, you hear temple bells all through the day and you stop and breathe peace. He said, you go to the United States, all you hear are noises. 
He said, but you got to create your own temple bells. So make a sound into your temple bell. And I thought, okay, we get all these robocalls. I'll make the telephone my temple. <laughs> and it really had an effect. The phone would ring instead of, oh, God damn it. You know, the solar energy again. You know what I mean? That I would say, okay, I'll breathe peace. And about the fourth or fifth time, I'd pick up the phone. And it's somebody trying to sell me something or do it. And I'd say, hello. I wouldn't get mad at them. I would just, you know, say goodbye, hang up. Well, I called my mother one day. The phone is ringing and ringing and ringing. And I'm really getting panicky. And so I'm about to hang up and call her neighbor. And I hear her voice say, hello. I say, Ma, are you all right? <laughs> Why are you asking? You didn't answer the phone. She said, I'm doing what you tell people to do. I'm breathing peace. <laughs> I said, Ma, that's for other people. You answer the phone. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love that. That's so cool. After that, I didn't worry anymore. And neither did the neighbors. But that's the kind of person she was. You know, her son was her symbol. So whatever I mentioned, she did. And I knew it worked. And the other is my, my two parents. These things I'd say, take with you for your lifetime. Ma, I have to make a decision at school. I don't know what to do. Do what makes you happy. It took me a long time to figure out what made me happy, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Think about it. And that's something I found cancer patients learn too. You know, let your heart make up your mind. Number two, Ma, it was a horrible day at school. Everything went wrong. God is redirecting you. Something good will come of this. Ma, did you hear what I just said? Everything went wrong. Yes, God is redirecting you. Mm -hmm. And I did talk to God quite a bit, you know, from my bed. So nobody would know I was crazy talking to God. <laughs> but I learned again. My mother was right. that and And most philosophers understand that too. I love Norman Vincent Peale. He became a friend. He said, oh, my mother said, Norman, if God slams one door further down the corridor, another will be open. See, getting the same. And my father's father died of tuberculosis, leaving six kids and a wife with nothing. And I heard him say one day when he was being interviewed, one of the best things that ever happened to me was my father dying when I was 12 years old. That night I said to him, Dad, what the hell are you talking about? And he said, it taught me what was important about life. We're all here to help each other and make life easier for each other. And boy, are his genes in me. Because when people, you know, rob me, and I mean it, you know, they lie to you, they take money, they do things. I'm free now. I don't have a burden. I don't need to call a lawyer, uh, you know, to say, I got to get this back. I got to get it. Uh, I'll even send nice messages to the people, telling them to have a nice day or a nice year or whatever. Um, let that, you know, if they want to feel bad what they did to me, that's up to them. But I'm not going to get up every morning mad as hell at somebody. I've done somebody a good turn. And uh, that's what I've learned.
And I was lucky to have parents like that. We're lucky to have you here to share all these stories. Thank you. And all this wisdom and everything. I what I one thing I like about podcasting, especially with ours, is we keep everything up. So um, meaning it stays up forever. We don't take it down. So anybody who wants to listen to it today or tomorrow, um, would you be willing to come back? Yes. Awesome. It was a pleasure, Bernie. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for listening. You bet. Guys, this is Dr. Dye with PTSD and Beyond. Remember, take what resonates and go beyond. And we'll see each other again next week, eh?